Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening and welcome to Tuesday Topics. I am Paul Edwards and uh, my co-host Brian Charlson is not going to be with us this evening, but we have loads of people in his place, so fear not. Um, we do have um, some of our regulars with us. I, I know that Miss Marianne is here. How are you, Miss Marianne? I am very well, Paul. It's good to be here again. Excellent. And Mr. Larry, I know your, our streamer is here. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm very good. Everything is cool. And Excellent. And Mr. Rick, are you with us as well? He is not. He is. Um, he is not. He no. has had major oral stuff going on, so he's oh, taking yeah, it he easy. Said- he said he might not be able to be here um, mm-hmm. as a result of that. Mm-hmm. However, we have a bunch of guests this evening. We we in fact have three panelists who are who are with us who we will we will begin talking with very shortly. Um, I want to, however, start by doing something a little uncustomary mm-hmm. and talking about next week's show. Um, next week, we're going to do what we hope will be a kind of a tribute um, to Oral Miller, who is uh, the, the, the president of ACB for a while, national representative for ACB for a long time, um, died on August the 6th. And we'd like to do a, a program to kind of commemorate Oral. And so I would encourage all of you who are listening um, to uh, to let folks who knew Oral know so that they can come next week and contribute to what we hope will be uh, a, a really appropriate and um, and good program, kind of celebrating all the many elements of Oral Miller. So I'm looking forward to that tonight. However, <clears throat> we I'm overjoyed to see that we have loads of people with us. And so we'll get to your questions a little bit later on, but we have we have three folks with us um, from uh, from ACB committees. We have two folks. We have Chris Bell, who's also on the board of directors, and we have Becky Davidson. And both of them um, have have recently been involved in doing lots of work and. Um, spending loads of time thinking about um, environmental changes that will happen as a result of a final rule that is supposed to come into effect on the 6th of September. In order to understand all of that, though, I think um, we probably need to sort of begin with the big picture. And by the way, I'd like to say that I am very impressed with, um, with the work that both Chris and Becky did um, to send in what amounts to an outline of, of some of the things that they wanted us to consider. Um, but either Chris or Becky, tell us a little bit about the committee you guys are a part of. Well, since at the moment I seem to be the chair of it, I'll start. Um, I chair the pedestrian environment access committee. Um, and basically what we, uh, what we do is, um, deal with issues concerning the accessibility of the pedestrian environment and um that a a lot of that has been taken up with pedestrian safety 
Um, and that's where a lot of our focus is and will be. Um, we're all pedestrians and we all have um, the right to, to the same safety um, precautions that anybody else has the right to. So um, mm -hmm. that's, that's basically um, the, the premise that we're coming from. And now the, just the committee has been around for a while, hasn't it? It's been around for a long time. Actually, Chris was yep. chair before me. Debbie Grubb has chaired it as well. Um, Debbie Grubb and her committee back in 2011 and 12 uh, created the Pedestrian Safety Handbook, which is still, mm -hmm. um, still of great value today. There have been some updates to it, some articles that were in it updated. Um, and that is on the ACB website. And a lot of that is written to educate traffic planners and engineers on um, the needs and concerns and issues relating to blind and visually impaired pedestrians. Um, there's also, there are, there are committee pages for many of the ACB committees, including ours. And on our page, there's links to the Pedestrian Safety Handbook, plus we have links to many of the podcasts that we have been part of over the past several years. We've been we've been presenting at conventions uh, on these topics um, in combination with the Transportation Committee um, yep. every year for quite some time now. Um, the tag has been to mobility and beyond, and that kind of is your clue when you look at the program. Oh, it's them again. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> uh, yes. So, we're, so we're, that's, we're glad it's them. <laughs> yeah. So that's, you know, that's what our focus has been. And um, I have some members on, on this committee that are extremely learned. Um, uh, Chris is the go-to guy um, when it comes to understanding the legal ramifications of much of what we're dealing with, mm -hmm. um, because partly because he is who he is, but partly because of his involvement with the ADA back in the 90s. So um, we have several other members who have done a lot of work and a lot of research uh, <clears throat> and are quite knowledgeable. So I'm kind of but, the facilitator for these yep. people that are much smarter than I am. So Chris Bell, the, 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 the entity that has published this final rule that we're going to be talking about has been around for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about the Architect Architecture and Transportation Barriers Compliance Board? Very well said, Paul. Um, yeah, that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, usually goes by Access Board because that's a little easier to say. Yes. So the Architectural and Transportation Barriers Compliance Board was that, established uh, in. That's right. Was established in 1973 in the Rehabilitation Act, uh, Section 502, and it was established to set up uh, guidelines for an earlier law called the Architectural Barriers Act, which was passed in 1967, which applies to federal buildings. So it was setting up uh, guidelines, accessibility guidelines for that, uh, and also and still uh, enforces that law. Uh, so it's been around for you know quite a while. And, and, and it's, um, comprised of, it's comprised of uh, multiple members. There are public members who are uh, for example, the Department of Justice, the Department of Transportation, the U.S. Postal Service, uh, Health and Human Services, uh, Defense Department, etc. And then there are uh, private members who are appointed by the president 
and um, the majority of those members have to be people with disabilities. Right, and 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 ACB has had um, some people on that board in the past, have we not? I honestly don't know. Well, there's an ACB um, member on it right now. Uh, she's not in leadership or anything, but she is a member of ACB, Sarah Presley. Yep, she's an employee of the board. She's not. She's not a <clears throat> member. Oh, she's not actually board. on the board. Okay. No, she yes. works for the board. Okay. Sorry. I think. I, I think. At, at, I can't say for sure. Actually, that that ACB members have been on the board. I know that we have been active on loads of the committees that the board has set up. Um, to uh, in some of its work and 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 the person who I think of most when I think of ACV involvement is a uh, is is a lady called Pat Beatty. Oh who yeah. People who who have been members of ACB for a long time will know, but Pat virtually single-handedly carried the torch for um, for environmental access for us for years, and and I don't know what blind people would have done had it not been for her effort, because it was really before we had a full-fledged committee. Um, and 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 she essentially did it as kind of a labor of love. It was very different from her full-time job. So um, I, I always think it's good to kind of pay tribute to folks who, who paved the way and made a huge difference in terms of creating ACB's reputation um, in terms of uh, in terms of access. So Ms. Becky, we are talking now about a final rule. Um, so uh, either, either you, or, or maybe you'd want to do this one, Chris. T tell us where this final rule started and how it got to be a final rule. Okay, well, first of all, a slight correction. It's not a rule, oh, it's a guideline. Thank and, you. Uh, and the reason that that's important is because we're just part of this process of setting up ADA legal standards. So first of all, the Access Board has been working on its guidelines for the public rights of way, which I'll explain what that means in a minute, for over 30 years. And um, uh, this is not a speedy process. No, it is so not. So now that they have finally <laughs> issued final guidelines, we're still not done. And the reason is that in order for those guidelines to have the force and effect of law, um, the Department of Justice and the Department of Transportation have to conduct their own rulemaking procedures to either adopt the guidelines or to modify and adopt them. So they can do more than the access board has done in the guidelines. And that's a good thing for reasons we'll say a little later. Um, but they can't do less. They can't have a lower accessibility standard than are in the guidelines. So, <clears throat> so we still have a uh, rulemaking process uh, to take and make these guidelines a legal standard. But that's not the only piece of the puzzle. Um, the other piece of the puzzle is, a, is an arcane document issued by the Department of Transportation, and it is called the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices. Don't try to say that quickly. So the manual has been around for 80 years, and its logic makes sense. It's trying to make sure that whether you're driving in California 
or Portland, Oregon, or Florida, that the traffic signals and traffic signs that you see as a driver are all consistent. So people aren't having signs that look one way and signals that look another way in different states. It would be terribly disruptive. So that's all fine. Um, but they also create the standards for traffic signals. And up until now, including now, they have never required uh, the installation of accessible pedestrian signals. They have a standard for what an accessible pedestrian signal must look like, must function, the parts and how they operate. And they have places in the manual that says um, you should consider putting in accessible pedestrian signals. But up until now, there has never been a, a section in there that says you shall use accessible pedestrian signals. So the, uh, the manual and uniform traffic control devices is about to be updated. And uh, when it's updated, uh, it still isn't going to include PROAG because PROAG has not been adopted by Justice for Transportation. But after they adopt it, then the manual will include the provisions well, of PROAG. It, so it, we've got it, a ways it to it go. Will be, it will be forced to include it, whether it wants yes, to or it not. Yes, it will be forced to include it, yes. Right. And But this is the document that every local entity that is every city, every town, every village in the United States is aware of because this is the manual that they have to build their traffic signals on. Yes, that that is correct. Yes. And it's also quite restrictive. So mm -hmm. you have to show a number of things that are referred to as warrants in the manual. If you're going to get in, if you're going to be put in a pedestrian signal of any kind, because much of the manual is concerned with keeping vehicular traffic moving and avoiding congestion. So it's not exactly favorable to pedestrians. It's pretty so, car centric. Yes, it, it, it's as interesting. As our whole culture is. Yes, as our whole culture is. But it's interesting. I, I guess I would argue, and, 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 and I'll let you guys see what you think. Um, I, I guess I would argue that, that um, the adoption of regulations that make things increasingly better is is a very gradual process, and and it's when when accessible when accessible pedestrian signals first came along, um, there 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 wasn't a lot of regulation, and it wasn't easy to get them adopted locally because they were very much the outlier and and the access board might know about them but nobody else did um would you guys agree with that yes i would and and there mm -hmm. were there were people that were uh orientation mobility specialists like right. benson yes. and janet barlow yes really carried our water for decades yes they did attending yeah, uh, different uh, groups, uh, working with transportation engineers. Um, and it, they actually established the research that made it possible to have a standard for accessible pedestrian signals. So we, mm -hmm. we owe a lot to those. Oh, we, we totally do. But there were we divisions do. within our own community about whether yeah. they were useful or should be allowed or not too. So yes. that tends to slow things down. But I think those divisions, those traffic patterns and, and all of those kinds of things have changed dramatically over the last 20 years. You yeah, know, I think it would everybody make sense. Kind of, 
accepts them yeah. now in, in the yeah. blind community so, anyway. Exactly, because it's <laughs> it's really a matter of safety. It's You can't necessarily listen to traffic and know what's going on anymore. No. And for reasons that we'll probably get to. Mm -hmm. By the way, everybody, we do have another panelist, and we, we, we haven't really gotten to the point where, he's, where he has talked yet. But one of the things that we thought is that it would be really good to have someone join us who comes from the the by far the the largest and most widely utilized company um, that manufactures accessible pedestrian signals, which is a company called Polara. And Chris Holloway is with us. Good evening, Chris. Good evening. Welcome. And we are That's so good. glad that you're with us. Um, um, and and we will give you an opportunity to tell us what some of the latest bells and whistles that have been added to Polara because Polara when when it first started was um, was a much less complex and much less usable device than it is now. You can oh, yeah. you can do all all kinds of things with new Polaras that we didn't dream of when the first ones came out. So Chris will tell well, us some more about that. Go ahead, okay. Becky. I was just going to say one of the things that that um, I really appreciate about Chris and and the other people that we worked with um, with Polara is that they have become strong advocates on our yes. behalf as well. And it's not just because it's the their business; it's because they they know and understand the reality of this. All right. So, so we Paul, have... I'd like to start with talking about yes what the public rights of way accessibility guideline what does that mean what does it cover that's exactly what i was going to ask you today hey, okay you see that so so <laughs> i'm reading my maybe we're married um uh -oh. <laughs> the, the first word the first word is p for public and public has kind of two senses uh in these guidelines in the one sense it means that we're all invited okay it's yeah. open to the public now. Um, so what that means is these guidelines don't apply to private property. So your shopping malls and your um, you know private convention centers and your strip malls and whatnot. Um, yeah, people go there, but they're not public. They're privately owned. So these public guidelines don't apply to them. And pu public in the other sense, which it's referring to public entities that is to say state county local city village uh entities they are the entities that own and control the public rights of way and they're the ones that have to comply with these accessibility guidelines now what does rights of way mean well rights of way is a kind of legal catch-all phrase for sidewalks and intersections and curb ramps and basically uh the rights of way is where we all go when we walk if now we're lucky and if we have sidewalks there are a lot of places blind people walk where you don't have sidewalks and you're going to walk along the side of the road that is also a public right of way um <clears throat> so uh, that's the sense of public rights of way um, and basically, the guidelines have a standard to make sure that the places where pedestrians walk are accessible. They're not too narrow, that you don't end up bumping into newspaper 
stands and utility poles and you know that there are curb ramps etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's a lot of the public rights of way now accessibility i think everybody knows what that means want to make these uh places where pedestrians go to be accessible for all people with disabilities uh, that includes us, of course, but it includes wheelchair users, it includes hearing impaired people, it includes the whole panoply of folks with disabilities. And then there's the guidelines, and I said that already, that this is not a legally enforceable rule yet until the Department of Justice and the Department of Transportation take action. Um, so that's the basic thrust of that. Now, a lot of what we're going to talk about today, because it's of the greatest concern, uh, to our community is accessible pedestrian signals. And maybe this would be a good time to invite Chris Holloway in to tell us about what accessible pedestrian signals are uh, functionally. And one of the questions I had for him is, okay, if you're a city department of transportation and you order from Polara an accessible pedestrian signal, you know, what's in the box? What are you getting? Um, so Chris, why don't you start there? All right, Mr. sounds Chris. good. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate that. So um, accessible pedestrian signals, the idea behind them from our perspective is being able to communicate the same information that a sighted person uh, would get um, in order to make decisions about crossing the street uh, and providing them in an audible format for those uh, who uh, are not able to um, are not able to see. And so the the box that you would receive uh, would be a, a push button device, uh, very similar to the same types of push buttons that um, that you may that that a pedestrian might press as they are uh, walking up to the street and they want to request to cross uh, that street. I think the point has been made here already that we are a very car centric uh, society, and so um, pedestrians, you know, in places other than like. Um, your larger downtowns like a New York City or a Philadelphia or someplace like that where signals are pre-timed and the pedestrian signals um, come up regardless of whether uh, a pedestrian is there pressing a button or not. A lot of places around the United States have push buttons and uh, there are some citizens who have even referred to them as beg buttons, um, begging <laughs> to cross the street. <laughs> and so um, the idea is you walk up, you press the button which says, I'm here, I would like to cross this roadway. Uh, the pedestrian signal would change uh, uh, in, in, in coordination with the, the way that the signal has been timed. Uh, and then that walk signal would come up and the pedestrian would cross. And so taking um, that concept or that idea, uh, the APS was, uh, was created and it said, hey, look, we can also press a button, but wouldn't it be great if we could press a button and get audible feedback? And so this button um, is a, it's a, a button that has a high contrast uh, arrow on it uh, so that those with uh, limited sight would be able to see uh, the arrow and spot it on the pole. Uh, it also, when you press um, the button and make that request, uh, a red LED will light up on that button and it will communicate to you that a request has been made to the traffic controller to provide you with a walk signal uh, to cross the street. Um, and then in conjunction with that, you would also hear a message that would say, wait, um, telling you to wait before you cross the roadway. 
And then whenever the walk signal comes on, I'm sorry, go ahead. Even even before that, Chris, um, a a blind person has to find that that button. So how does he do that? Absolutely. Great point. So each button emits what we call a locate tone um, that is supposed to be able to be heard from six to 12 feet away, uh, according to that uh, rather antiquated document that Chris mentioned, (laughs) the MUTCD. So um, the locate tone is a once per second tone uh, that, again, you can hear from six to 12 feet away so that you can locate the button, press and hold the button. If you hold the button down for one second or greater, Um, There's different functionality that can come into play, and I know we'll talk a little bit about those um, as we progress, but uh, in its simplest form, if you hold the button down uh, for greater than a second, it would then communicate to you where you are at, the street that you were trying to cross and what the cross street is. Um, And then then it would, um, when the walk signal comes on, then you would get one of two messages. Um, Either you would get a rapid percussive type of sound, um, and there's various different uh, sounds that are used by different manufacturers. We have three different options that um, that you can choose for that. And then, or you may receive a a verbal uh, message that says the walk sign is on uh, cross a specific street name so that you know that you're actually crossing that particular street that you thought that you were at and that you wanted to cross. So if that, so if you were on first street, wanting to cross first street, it would say walk sign is on to cross first street. Now, the way that traffic signals operate, um, they provide that walk indication initially, and then that typically would time out in a very short period of time. So say five, six, seven seconds. And then once that times out, it goes into a mode called the clearance. Um, Those uh, who are able to see the pedestrian signal on the other side of the street, it will look like the the red hand is flashing, um, which is indicating that they want you to hurry and speed up and get across the street, uh, but that um, you still have time. Um, And and then in addition to that, there's also in very different formats, Um, you'll see countdown numerals that are indicating how much longer you have to progress across the street. Um, There are a couple of different modes of operation, and I know there's been a lot of discussion about this whenever it comes into the clearance mode. Once the button enters into the clearance mode, it will either provide you with an additional locate tone that's louder than the one that you would hear from 6 to 12 feet away, Uh, guiding you to the other side of the street to where that other button is located. If uh, a city chooses a different option, they may provide that uh, countdown that I was just talking about that a sighted pedestrian would see crossing the roadway, telling them how much longer they have to cross. Uh, They may provide that in an audible format. So you may hear 10, 9, 8, that sort of thing. And that's yep. just counting down and letting you know that that's how much longer you have um, before the 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 don't walk indication will appear again. So when 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 we're operating with those pedestrian signals and 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 Chris and Becky, if you want to jump into this question, feel free to do that. When we're operating with these signals, is, is there a tendency for the time to be too short? 
because of the of the car centric nature of of what we do so i you know there's some numbers that uh engineers will um will throw out and i i believe that it's it's either 3 it's either 3 0.5 feet per second or 4.5 feet per yeah. second it's 3.5 um, feet is the is the current standard in terms of the assumed walking speed of right. a of a pedestrian Thank i will you. tell you yeah. as a as a, as an old as an old blind guy that walks with a uh, support cane i only walk at uh 1.5 feet per second so if i'm right. across the street man i better re i would really be booking it um because uh and there are a lot of older people that, that don't walk at three and a half uh feet per second so that's a that's an issue there's a lot of young people that walk slow walk walk that that uh that slow and they're so. not just blind yeah. people either i mean that's you right. know exactly yeah yeah so Particularly it's, it's when they're standard. looking at their phones that's <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. 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 yes got a good point chris yep there's a standard that's out there that um, I, I think it was established and, it, and it's kind of old. It's antiquated, very much like that MUTCD, um, but it's the standard that's in place that these engineers are using whenever they're calculating the amount of time to cross the roadway. Um, I, I mentioned briefly uh, a moment ago, there's other types of um, things that you can do with these buttons these days that it's it's not just the button itself, but it has to work in conjunction with uh, the traffic controller. So the traffic controller has to be able to take these uh, these additional inputs and then do something with them. And so mm -hmm. um, going back to, to Chris's point, if you know that you are a slower walker uh, walking across the street, uh, we could utilize that extended push that's providing that additional information for you in an audible format. We could also use that input to tell the traffic controller that, hey, this is someone who may need some additional time and it could call up a different clearance interval that would allow for additional time to cross that particular roadway. Um, so right, but that's yeah. up to the government that, that's that's established or that has that signal, what options that they want to put on it. Um, it, right. it. It is, but I would strongly encourage you to make a request, just like we're having to request for APS in a lot of areas. That's not It's not a standard that they just automatically do. We have to request those. Um, request that functionality as well, because it's something that all the manufacturers can do. Um, it's just a matter of them implementing that and providing additional time for you to cross the roadway. Right, but there's, right a, there's another time issue here, and that is that if you're blind, okay, and you get that percussive tone that's telling you the walk sign is lit, you still have to use your orientation and mobility skills and your ears, if they're working well enough, to make sure that when you step out into that intersection, you're not going to have a car run you down. And yep. could, why? Because drivers don't obey all the traffic laws. In fact, there was yeah. a study quite a few years ago that said only 47% of all drivers come to a complete stop at a red light or a stop yeah. sign. Um, or a right turn on scary. red. Yeah. Right. You're supposed yeah. to even stop before you turn yeah. right on red. So the, but the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, as we, we can't be sighted pedestrians and just kind of look to our right and look to our left and, you know, step out when the walk sign is on. We have to stop and listen to make sure that it's safe. And that takes some time too. It does. Yeah, that's a great point, Chris. And even, you know, and we haven't really 
Um, I don't know if we were planning on talking about this, but one of my kind of pet peeves these days is um, going back to the car centric mentality. Um, we, we've started adding in uh, LPIs that are supposedly supposed to help uh, pedestrians, right? And a LPI is, uh, it's a leading pedestrian interval. And so the idea of the concept behind it is it allows a pedestrian uh, to step off the curb and to move further out of the way of a right turn or left turn automobile so that it's a it's a safer crossing for you. Um, the challenge with that is in locations where they have regular buttons or they have just pre-timed intersections without APS, how how does someone with a visual impairment know that that um, that additional time has been provided? Because Everyone is listening for that parallel traffic to begin moving, right? Um, and so if that's not occurring, you're not sure that you can step out. And so it adds to that additional time that Chris is talking about. Um, and by the time you start to hear that traffic moving, you step off into the roadway. And now we're talking about, um, you know, driver expectation. And the driver has seen pedestrians start to cross the roadway and another person just standing on the side of the curb. And if they think they're not going to move and then they start to move and a person who's visually impaired hears the traffic begin to move and thinks now we can go and they step out and the person makes a right hand turn. And it's a very it's a very dangerous situation. And we're, it we're is. strongly encouraging um, traffic engineers these days if they're even if they're not going to put APS in at all locations, we're begging them to put in APS. Uh, at these locations where they're utilizing LPIs. So I, yeah, I'm I would ask say, all, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead, Paul. Go ahead. Well, I would say no, go ahead. that the manual on uniform traffic control devices, uh, when they talk about these leading pedestrian intervals, and there's another one called the exclusive pedestrian phase where all the traffic mm -hmm. is stopped. Um, That's right. When they talk about that, they, they say, you should consider that a visually impaired person uh, will not know uh, when to start walking, and therefore you should consider putting in accessible pedestrian signals, but they're not required. That's right. And the, yeah. what the argument that I'll that they'll come back to me with, Chris, is not only does it say you should consider it, it says that if you if you choose not to do that, then all you have to do is add some additional time to that movement, allowing that uh, visually impaired pedestrian enough time to cross the street and that in, misses in the entire point that misses right. the right. entire point right which right. is which is a sighted pedestrian is given the benefit of getting into a safer area in that roadway and a visually impaired pedestrian does not have that same benefit um you're putting them right in the middle of harm's way in using that operation and it's it's just it's it's dangerous and I just, again, <laughs> sometimes I get myself in trouble with these people whenever I'm talking to them because I'm, I, I get, I get pretty, uh, pretty passionate about it. I, I'm going well, to glad ask, for that. Yep, exactly. But I am going to ask all three of you um, what may be a controversial question. Ready? Sure. Go. Yeah. <laughs> what, what impact do you guys think? that white cane laws have on the ability of blind people to cross streets effectively with, with pedestrian signals. 
zero. That's <laughs> that's my view. <laughs> and I think, and I yours think as we well, Becky. Yeah. Yep. Yes, I yep. I agree. Um, yeah. So uh, we we go out every year and we tell we tell folks um, what what a great thing white canes are and and blah blah blah. <clears throat> and when what I'm hearing you saying is is what I believe as well that that really the, the impact that white canes have on drivers is virtually nil. They're, I mean, they're not we're, looking, they're not looking for them. Looking for it. No, they're yeah. not. I mean there are, you know, people uh, people are told, you know, to get a driver's attention at, at by lifting your cane. Um, right. You hear that from O and M people um, <laughs> sometimes. That kind of don't, thing, and whether it works that. or not. I mean, how yeah. many people? How, how many people even just call it a stick, or they don't really know what what it actually is or what it's for? Right. I mean, we have enough trouble with guide dogs, which are much more definable. Yeah. Um, yes. But people don't get it. Um, they just don't think about it. When I was in high school many many moons ago, I had to take the classroom part of driver's education. Um, nice. which was the big joke in my public school, but it was fine. Nobody would let me drive their cars. Um, <clears throat> but um, there was even mention of white cane laws then. Um, and this was back in the late 60s. Um, so it's not like they haven't been around. It's just that people, that's the last thing on their minds. They're not looking for it. They don't necessarily, if you bring it to their attention, they're like, oh yeah, okay, fine. And then the next day they've forgotten all about it. Yep. <clears throat> I, I just wanted to, to put that out on the table because I think it's, it, it really is important. I think for, for ACB to seriously think about what kind of message we're not sending with white cane laws. And 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 I I would argue what some some damage that we're doing by con, by continuing to to kind of involve ourselves with something that so patently doesn't work. Well, I think um, we have to present it differently. Uh, yeah, there's so. a law out there, but now, in fact, you know, now it's an issue of accessibility, and I think people relate to that more than than they re relate to something called the white cane law. May, and maybe you're right, Becky. And 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 um, that, I, but I, I but I think I think we need to think about it. So anyway, um, so let's talk a little bit more about exactly what these pedestrian right of way accessibility guidelines actually include. Who wants to start? Well, I can uh, I can start right now in its uh, in the guideline format. Um, the uh, guidelines for the very first time uh, establish a right uh, to accessible pedestrian signals. Uh, that's never happened before. You have a right. right to an accessible pedestrian signal if if you have an inaccessible pedestrian signal or what I like to call a visual only pedestrian signal. Mm -hmm. um, you have a right to an accessible pedestrian signal if they're gonna put in a new signal, okay? So this could be new construction, like you're adding uh, 
uh, an end to a street, you're extending it, you're going to have sidewalks and whatnot, you're going to put in brand new signal, brand new intersection. That's one way it could be a new signal. Another way is that the uh, existing visual-only pedestrian signal, um, you know, reaches the end of its life. I'm not sure what the end of the life is for uh, a regular pedestrian signal. Do you, do you know, Chris Holloway? How many years um, there, they last? There, there are pedestrian signals in some cities that have <laughs> been going for fifty years now. Exactly. Um, they're Ooh. they're you know they they don't look very good. They're burned out in many areas, but um, they're just some agencies that don't have the funds to replace them as frequently as they should. So I would say a good rule of thumb for uh, for a a, a a pedestrian signal display um, of the newer type, these new LED types, uh, would be anywhere between seven and 15 years. Right? Okay, so think about that. So if you've got a visual-only pedestrian signal and the law says, well, you have to replace it with an accessible pedestrian signal when the old signal dies, you're talking about a you know, 15 to 20-year wait before you get a new one, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty slow process. Now, the other piece, the other mandate is, even if you're not talking about a new pedestrian uh, signal, if you alter a pedestrian signal, um, then you have to put in, make it accessible. Now, that's okay, except that the access board has deliberately declined to define <laughs> <laughs> what it means to alter a pedestrian signal. They had in yeah. the earlier version, the proposed version, they included changing the pet head and I don't even remember what else it was. But this version, they basically said, well, we're going to wait for the Department of Justice and Department of Transportation to define what an altered, uh, what an alteration means. So that is, uh, you know, that's just big <laughs> and yeah, who knows it's what concerning gonna do. Yeah. It, it was yeah. it was even uh chris to your point it the original language um essentially said if you update the intersection and so that could be something as um you know as simple as right. they they put in a different type of traffic controller or they changed the signal timing of that intersection or they added a traffic light so it wasn't necessarily um fixated on anything pedestrian oriented like it does now, uh, I think that would have been a better um, a better way to do it. And I'm hoping that the DOJ will uh, uh, the DOJ and the and, and DOT will take steps to bring that back and and make it a little bit uh, more open, so that basically, if you're going to update an intersection and they do things to intersections, probably you know every two to five years. Now we're talking. Now we can start getting some APS installed um out there at some intersections whenever they're updating it so chris holloway do we have any idea a how many traffic lights there are in the united states and b how many accessible pedestrian signals there are as compared to that you know my bosses ask me those kind of questions all the time so they can calculate <laughs> how much money they're going to make um <laughs> no, no i i really i don't have a good number um it, it that is data that a lot of the states and cities uh, keep to themselves uh, for whatever reason um yeah. one one of the things that we do when we travel around is we try and find that information out right and a lot of times you're asking the very guys who maintain these traffic lights and they just kind of look at you and go 
oh, around about maybe this many, uh, but they don't want to just come right out and tell you the exact number. So, um, well, here's a footnote: if you're if you're an advocate uh, as a blind individual or as a state affiliate or your chapter, your state has what's called a public records law. They got different names in different states, but basically, they give residents and citizens the right to get information from your government. So you mm. can actually write in to the traffic department or the city manager or whoever and say, I want data uh, that shows how many inaccessible pedestrian signals we have within this jurisdiction and how many accessible pedestrian, and they have to give it to you. Okay. Yeah. Now what they're, I will what they're going to do is give you invoices, and I mean, <laughs> you're going to need some, some. You're going to need some site help to figure all this out, all right? But but they have you. You can get it from them. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that we use as a rule of thumb, and it 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 seems to play out pretty well, is that you can expect you know um, uh, one <laughs> one traffic signal for what's what's the rule one one traffic light per every thousand people of population um something like that so you so if you take a look at uh uh someplace like um you know that's that's uh, sixty thousand people in a town they should probably have somewhere around 60 traffic lights now you're talking about vehicle traffic lights or pedestrian lights so ve- vehicle whenever so a traffic signal so a, and, and right. typically most or at least where i'm at most traffic signals intersections these days also have pedestrian crossings, right? Um, that's different from a mid-block crossing where it's a it's only a crossing specifically for a pedestrian. Um, those right. are fewer and far between. Well, the one the thing pedest- that oh. go ahead, go ahead, Becky. Yep. Well, the one thing that you know we have heard because of litigation that has been taking place in large metropolitan areas like Chicago and New York. Right. I don't remember the exact numbers. I know Ray quoted the Chicago one in, in, in Chicago. And, um, you know, but the, if you looked at the percentage of, of APSs that were available, it was like in the single digits. Yeah. So low. in, in yeah. Chicago, yeah. it was <laughs> one half of 1% of all of their pedestrian signals, not their traffic signals, their pedestrian signals. Only one half of 1% uh, were accessible. In fact, the we're Department accessible. of Justice I- intervened in that suit that was brought by ACB of Metropolitan Chicago. And the Department of Justice in their complaint said this was the worst city in the whole country, right? Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> there was similar litigation by ACB of New York against New York City. New York City was a little better. Um, 95% of its pedestrian signals were inaccessible. They had 5% that were. But, you know, this is not impressive, folks. No. no. So uh, this actually brings me to the question that I, that I was going to put on the table. When, when the accessible pedestrian signal first, first hit the boards, as it were, 30 and 35 years ago, it was very much a local issue. That is, you essentially had to intervene in your local community and an intervention at the state level and for the most part at the national level wasn't expected to do very much good. Are we still at that place? Sort of. Um, 
you still have to start locally. But one of the first things that you have to find out is if you're asking for uh, a, a pedestrian APS at a specific intersection, who owns that road? Is it a city road? Is it a state road? Is it a county road? Is it a, ah, you know, um, so point. which you can find out when, you know, at the local level, you can find that out. You know, if the, if, if you're lucky enough that the road is state route 117, which is what we had in Mount Kisco when I lived there. Okay. That's a state road. That's where I have to go for this one. Um, so that's that information is you, you need to have in order to, to start the process. So the, the best way to, to define it is um, whoever has jurisdiction over the road is going to have jurisdiction over the accessible pedestrian signals that go on that road. That's yeah, right. and if you have and a state generally. road and a and a city road, that the, the intersection is between a state road and a and a town road, they're going to have to you know work it out, fight it out. Yep. So, yeah. Somebody well, else is going to say something. Go ahead. Yeah. Chris, so, so so um, as a general rule, all of transportation is a local matter. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. If, yeah. If, if you're talking about buses, if you're talking about subways uh if you're talking about you know local trains that's all going to be controlled by the local government whether it's the county or the city um now they're, they're regional systems too that's a that's a different elephant but um you know generally speaking when we advocate for accessible pedestrian signals or for paratransit um we're going to be talking to the local transportation department um mm -hmm. that's operating them very good. Yeah. Yes, but I, Chris, I would I would throw in the caveat to that is that's definitely where you're going to begin, and you know everyone is going to have a different um, experience uh, dealing with their local transportation uh, departments because some of them are progressive and they listen and they understand and they want to try and help, and then others <clears throat> will give you big time pushback. And and those that are giving you pushback, I, I say, don't stop there. Then your next step is to take it to your local city council person. Get right. them to be your advocate and get on your side. Um, and I've seen, you know, numerous success stories there where you you that helps. Um, the challenge with that is, you know, then you can somewhat make a little bit of an enemy of your transportation person. Um, and they're just... They're, they're, it's a vindictive group of people. <laughs> I'll just leave it <laughs> at that. Um, they don't like being told what to do. And, uh, and, and who so, does? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. But um, I think it's, it, it's definitely, you, you, you have to start at the level of uh, the, the transportation group, as Chris said. Uh, but right. if you're not getting satisfaction there, don't think, oh, well, I, I can't win. Um, you can. You just have to go to that next level, which is to get a little political over it. So um, several one, chapters around. Oh, oh, go ahead, Chris. No, I, Chris. So what I was Chris and, is, and and then Becky. Okay. On our on the Pedestrian Environmental Access Committee website on acb.org, there are some uh, form letters um, that I've prepared uh, for different groups and. Uh, there's several things about these letters. Number one, they you have to say, you know, where do you want the accessible pedestrian signals? So you got to identify the, the intersection of the block. 
And then I think it's important to explain why you need them. So maybe you say, well, I've always, I, I need one because I've come close to being hit or I need one because <clears throat> in order to avoid being hit, I have to take an Uber or a Lyft or, you know, to get around uh, or I need to go to work. I need to cross the street or the grocery stores and those other stuff. You've got to explain to traffic engineers why it's important, you know, how it affects your, your daily life and what you have to give up to not get it because they're not going to know. Okay. They, they're just not going to understand that. Um, and then the next thing that I put in this letter is I explain how it's the law. Okay. And even before PROAG, I throw in the cases that ACB has litigated and say, you know, by the right. way, if, if you don't want to do this, that's okay with us, but you have liability. Well, how do you have liability before there was PROAG? Well, part of the ADA says with regard to governments that they have to make their programs and their activities which include the streets and intersections they have to make their programs and activities um, accessible in some way and if it's a communication issue which is what we have if you have visual only pedestrian signals there's a provision in the ada regulations that says you have to provide and the phrase is effective, effective communication, communication so that right. people with disabilities can get the same information as people that aren't disabled. So even before public rights <clears throat> of way accessibility guidelines, um, there, there was a right to make sure that if you wanted to cross the street and had a visual only pedestrian signal, you can cite to that regulation and say, hey, you're obligated to get this visual signal information to me in a format that I can use, which means audible and sometimes vibrotactile, that arrow that Chris Holloway is mentioning right. vibrates when the walk sign comes on for, for deafblind people. Um, and so that's a right that's in the regulations now. It's been in the regulations since uh, the first regulations came out in, in 2001. So um, you can always cite that. And the last thing I want to mention is a couple of years ago, there was a bipartisan infrastructure law passed. And that was about a $1.3 trillion uh, bill. And uh, there's a, a ton of, of money. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a ton of money that was allocated to state and local governments. And there's also some, some grant programs. So basically, right. if somebody in the, in the city transportation department says, oh, well, we'd really love to do that, but we don't have any money. Okay. Mm. That's not true. I mean, they, yeah. they can get the money. Right now, there's lots of money out there. And I would say, by the way, when somebody says that to you in government, what they're really telling you when they say we don't have the money is what they're really saying is it's not important enough to us to get right. the money because these things right. are prioritized. All right. So if they think it's important, they'll find the money. But, you know, for us, they'll say, I'm sorry, we, we, you know, we don't have the money, which really means you're just not important enough. And mm -hmm. so uh, because money is available and because we have this provision in the ADA, um, I make clear in these letters that you can't just say that. Ms. Becky, you were going to say I, something? I, and then I would say you should copy the letter to your city council people or to your county commissioners. Right. And copy, copy the lawyer for that government, so the city attorney, oh, the county yes. attorney, because you want them to be alerted that, by the way, this is a legal matter and you might need to get involved in order to avoid liability for your jurisdiction. Sorry, Becky. Becky, okay. you wanted to say something? 
Yep. Well, yeah. Back to talking about who who you contact or how you how you right. can get their attention. Um, we did this in a couple of areas of New York. Um, we did it in Westchester County, um, and it was also done in another part, upstate New York. And I think other affiliates and chapters have done it. They have invited um, traffic planners, engineers, people in, who decision makers, and and also council people. Um, to actually experience what it's like to cross the street. And we would have an O&M instructor um, and we would, you know, blindfold them and take them to the intersection and ask them, you know, is, when is it safe to cross the street? And of course they were terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but what, what we found out in New York state, one of the state department of transportation regional people was so into it that he actually started working like within a couple of weeks on figuring out how to get APSs installed on some of the state routes in Westchester County and made a promise to, um, you know, to have all state routes equipped with APSs um, in Westchester County by, I don't know, maybe next century. But, um, <laughs> but actually it, it, it did start to happen. Uh, <clears throat> and it's like anything else, the wheels may turn, but they turn very slowly. Um, and it's frustrating because you still need to get across the street. So let let me let me ask one other question, and then I'm I'm thinking it's almost time for us to open it up and see if folks have some questions. Unless you guys have some other things you want to cover first, what do you think, you guys? Let me look at the yeah, questions. Are good. We, I'm a yeah. lawyer. I can always talk. <laughs> so. and chris is pretty chris h is pretty passionate about what he does too and i think you know That's people right. may have some some technical yeah, questions exactly so so my I, I tell question you what, i would i wouldn't yes, mind talking chris. about just briefly before to kind of maybe um stoke the fire for some questions um maybe just a little bit about when what happens if you run across a location where you're experiencing some type of problem with an APS. Um, it doesn't seem to be loud enough or it's too loud. Um, Go ahead. Those sort of things. Um, yep. so, so just in general, um, sometimes, uh, you know, whenever these things are installed, uh, the whether it's the contractor, the local contractor mm-hmm. that's installing them or the cities themselves, sometimes they're not always paying attention to um, all of the various different rules that have been established both in the that uh, the MUTCD as well as um, uh, the the PROAG before um, we're at where we right. are today. Uh, but in, it deals with location of the button. You know, what's the mm-hmm. height that it should be installed at? What's the distance away from the ramp that you're going to be crossing at? How far away should they be? Those sorts of things. Um, so being in a poor location, being, um, you know, too far away, now maybe you can't hear them as well. That's where you also need to be able to reach out to your transportation officials and say, hey, at this specific location, I'm experiencing this issue um, and explain it to them. And that will allow them to go out and find out maybe someone didn't set it uh, properly. Maybe there's a problem with the button that needs to be investigated. Um, those those types of things um, that can be that can definitely be an issue now. As far as like the 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 volume levels, um, one of the things that you may run into, and this is another thing, what like Becky, you were talking about, um, getting traffic engineers out there and and blindfolding them and letting them experience 
what it's like to cross the street whenever you can't see. Um, similarly, getting them to understand like uh, like a let's say a traffic person is getting inundated with phone calls uh, from a local person who lives nearby mm. one of these intersections and they're complaining that it's too loud and they can't sleep and they also have rights and those sort of things. Um, what I've been trying to tell them is please reach out to the individual that asked you to install these in the first place and let them have a conversation with that citizen and explain to them why it's necessary to have those sounds and how they work. Um, we've had a few uh, experiences like that where the uh, the homeowner or whoever's living in the apartment or whatever, they they just absolutely did not understand that that's what was going on. And once they heard it from that person and they understood their need, then suddenly they weren't complaining about it anymore. So, yeah. it, you know, you can be dealing with with um, uh, those types of things as well. And then, uh, you know, there's a lot of older technology that's out there that might not be compliant. Um, and there's also some some products that are trying to come into the uh, to the U.S. currently uh, from overseas that um, they do things a little differently. And so they don't meet some of those standards that I think you guys were talking about early on that, you know, Janet Barlow and Miss Beasy mm-hmm. uh, were, were right. big into uh, establishing. Uh, so it, whenever you do run across those types of uh, situations, yeah, you can you can reach out to uh, to your local transportation person and just make them aware uh, because sometimes they're not. They think that they may be doing the right thing when when in fact they're they're not um, putting in the correct type of technologies and they're not upgrading technologies as quickly as they probably should. Well, Becky's first. Yep. One of the reasons that some of these other manufacturers are able to you know get these in in here is that they're less expensive and you know that when money is the big question that's the big answer um acb and uh, several other organizations actually have sent letters to one of the manufacturers in i think germany i think yeah anyway saying you know you're what you're doing is it's is not in compliance with our standards and our law. The other thing I wanted to, to mention before we open it up for questions is what the process is for the public rights of way access guidelines to become law. Um, and it, as, as we've said, it has to go through the Department of Justice and the Department of Transportation. Um, um, and there will be notice of proposed rulemaking coming out, allowing us time to make comments on what we think needs to um, change or be increased or improved in those guidelines. So um, a call will go out for comments and in both individual and organizational comments, but it's probably going to be a fairly short period of time. So I know our committee is already beginning to work on preparing comments um, that that you know that we may that we'll present and that we'll ask ACB to present as well. So okay, I'm done. Um, Chris Bell, you wanted to add something, and while you're talking, also um, talk talk to to why comments from individuals uh, in notices of proposed rulemaking are so important. That is our opportunity as individuals to educate the people that are actually going to draft 
the rules. You know, these are folks, and I used to be one of these guys. These are, these are folks that they got an office someplace in Washington, D.C., or maybe they're working from home now through telework. But they don't know, you know, diddly squat about blind people or the problems of crossing right. the street when you can't see. And so <clears throat> we need to educate them as to what the problems are and what we've experienced trying to cross. Uh, you know, I remember in, in Washington, D.C., people would just like, right. I'd be standing on a corner and somebody just grabbed me and pulled me across the street. Half right, time exactly. jaywalking, you know. Um, <laughs> so, All of us have I mean, had that happen, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, have, to, we have to tell, basically, when, when, when we're writing comments, we are lobbying. We're telling our story. This is what my right. life is like without these signals. Or this is what my life is like because you wrote it this way. And you're you're creating a problem that wasn't a problem before. So it, the storytelling is really important, and that's what you do when you write comments. Yeah. Now, did you want to say something else before I asked you the question, or should we open well, it up? Well, we well I, at some point I want to talk about roundabouts, but we, we yes, can take uh, questions I, I believe me, you'll get a chance because I'm <laughs> I'm not I'm not letting this program go by without talking about roundabouts. So, Miss Mary, Miss Marianne, do we have any hand? We do. And just so you know, Paul, we also have Darcy who's uh, monitoring Clubhouse. So um, oh, thank I'll, you. I'll be watching him as well. Um, but we have area code 330. You may unmute. Thank you. This is Michael, and I'm in here in Ohio. And I have a question about the these, uh, these uh, what you call the, the signal things that you're talking about. How Accessible would pedestrian help? signals, right? Go ahead. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, how would these people? I mean, how how would these things help with people who are hard of hearing or whatever? How would that? Good how question. would that work for them? So part of this button that Chris Holloway was talking about that has the arrow on it, it's a tactile arrow, and you can put your hand on it, and when the walk sign is on and you get that percussive sound, that arrow vibrates so that you don't have to be able to hear the percussive sound. You can feel the vibrating and the arrow is pointing you in the direction that you want to walk. So that's there for deafblind people. Yeah, I never knew that. That's, that okay. was my question. So, um, um, and uh, that, what, what about for, would, would there be anything for Braille at all on, the, on those things? Any Braille? No. Um, Braille is under the manual and uniform traffic control devices. You can have, at it's their discretion, you can put on the, uh, the, the front facing that the button sits on, you can put in Braille the name of the street being crossed, but it's not required. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and okay. most people don't find it very valuable either. Um, right. Chris Hollaby, yeah. you wanted to say something? Yeah, just adding to that. That so if you're if you're placing your hand on that vibral tactile arrow that Chris was talking about, if you just move your hand up, you'll feel um the the flat part of the sign and um uh, that's a sign that's conveying information to sighted pedestrians about what each um uh interval of that signal is doing and mm -hmm. on, on that is where they will typically put um a braille sticker if that local government agency has um has requested that and mm -hmm. i would say we only see maybe maybe 20 percent of our users who will request that 
uh, that Braille sticker on those signs. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Ms. Marianne? We have Deborah Kendrick. Ms. Hey. Kendrick. We unmute Deborah. Well, there we go. I, hey, I barely know where to begin except to say that um, Chris Bell, Becky Davidson, you are brilliant and we're so lucky to have you. Uh, this, I, I can get pretty emotional about all of this because, uh, as Joni Mitchell says, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And, yep. um, I have spent the last six years sort of being off the streets after feeling like the world was my personal oyster. Um, I, I, I made a very conscious decision in the 80s to research and move to an area where I could walk everywhere I needed to go. And life was good for about 25 years. And my my personal experience with traffic engineers has been abysmal and maybe that means i should le i should move to another city i i don't know but uh, but 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 when uh, now, now are you talking about ohio or florida I am um, talking Debbie. about Ohio, unfortunately. Very I tell good. everyone, you know, I, I have this I don't know where I live blues because I'm part time yeah. in two cities. And except for you, Paul, the best thing about Florida is better transportation and understanding of pedestrian safety. Um, Correct. in my yeah. view. <laughs> but <laughs> but so you know, I just I just have to tell you one terrible when I, I moved in twenty ten to a new a new neighborhood that was very walkable but there was a, a a major intersection between my neighborhood and businesses and and I thought no brainer you you get the traffic engineering involved and I did all the right things I I got a field manager from my guide dog school to come and look at it. I got a mobility instructor from the local blindness agency to look at it. Everybody agreed this was a perfect place for an installation of an APS. We all met at that intersection with a traffic engineer. So here I have a guide dog expert, me with a guide dog as well, and an O&M person all explaining why this is a perfect location. But she, the traffic engineer, had the power. And she, she declined. She, she declined on the basis that she would not be responsible for me. And that if I were to cross there and get killed, she would feel responsible for it. And as, as archaic as that sounds, um, it never happened because that was her belief. And that was, she dug in her heels and, and there it was. So um, I, I just want to throw that out to say that, you can have the law on your side and expertise on your side and people have such old cultural misconceptions oh, of no who question. we are and where yeah. we yep. belong, where yeah. we belong is at home. And yep. <laughs> so, um, so, but right now um, where, where I am is, as I said, I've been kind of six years off the streets and I've been working very hard and I'm getting back to, um, mobility and I'm able to use a white cane again and looking toward possibly getting another guide dog. But 
as, as you said, Chris, I laughed when you talked about how that you walk at 1.5 seconds. I, oh, I can probably up that, you know, <laughs> but I think um, that we, as you know, that's all that discussion of his blindness of culture or whatever. If we are, we need to be really working hard culturally, perceptually to get more young blind people out on the streets and walking and talking about safety and signals because yeah. my fear is that paratransit is killing independence. When, when I started Travel. being yep. able to walk again in Florida, I started asking around because I'm not as familiar with neighborhoods in Florida. And I started asking all the blind people I know and like in the city where I live there, is your neighborhood walkable? Is your neighborhood walkable? I'm looking to move somewhere where I can walk to a coffee shop, a library, a small grocery store. Deb, we got about 30 seconds because we have a thousand people waiting to talk. Right. Everyone that I asked said, oh, I never really walk anywhere. I just use paratransit. It's so, very sad. Yeah. It is yeah. sad. So I, I just think that's a whole other piece of work that all of us need to be aware of. I, 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 think, it's a, I think it's an ACB project. Um, I, I actually agree with you. Thank you, Ms. Deborah. Thank you. It's a great program. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Miss Marianne. Yeah, we have Dawn. 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 Okay. Um, so I have a couple of things to kind of say here. So first of all, I live in a rural area and I think people are forgetting you need to put these things, you know, because I won't say you need to put these things in rural areas, but they present a challenge in of themselves because there's no road, like there's no sidewalks, there's no nothing. And frankly, for me, preference wise, and also because of the fear, I do have a fear of getting hit when crossing a street to the, and I, I, I am at a point, you know, where if I have to, you know, if I had a choice, I would rather take paratransit or public transit. It's, it's that fear because you guys are right. Drivers, they don't slow down. They're looking at their phones. They're eating their breakfast and going to work and doing their homework, you know, behind the wheel and driving. So it's, you know, it's that type of situation. And um, also the thing that I'm thinking yeah. about white cane laws is that how many drivers actually interact with blind people or low vision people in their everyday lives in some yeah. capacity. How many? We're, because we're gonna we're gonna do a we're gonna do a program in the future, Miss Don, about um uh, about the, the white cane law. But but for now well, let's concentrate on all signals. I'm, all I'm just saying is that I think there needs to be education around that, I think. And so Yep, I, I I hear you. So let me ask the panel: What do you have any suggestions for folks in rural areas except to move? <laughs> um, yeah, it's it, it. I mean, it's a serious problem, and 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 to compound it uh, a little bit, um, we're not entitled to an accessible pedestrian signal 
unless there is first an inaccessible pedestrian signal. That's right. So you could have a crosswalk with no lights, okay? Yeah. And we don't, we can't go, we don't have a right to an accessible pedestrian signal. Now, if we can talk a, the transportation department in our town and putting one in, fine, they can always do more than the law requires. Correct. But there first has to be a pedestrian yeah. signal. And so that's, that's a shortcoming. And um, that may be where you rules. start is by saying to the traffic engineers, this is a dangerous crossing for cars and right. how many uh, and accidents I, are I'm happening there. Right. And yeah, I'm scared to death to cross the street. So yeah. can, can, can you not help me by giving me, by giving me something I can hear so that I feel more comfortable? But if you need to start with an accessible or with a pedestrian signal to begin with, you need to get drivers to show that it's dangerous for them yeah, too. That's, that's and a then good point. Once they true. once they say, okay, we'll put a traffic light in, well, guess what? It's gotta be an APS. Well, Miss Dawn, thank you very much for your call. The other thing I will <laughs> say also really fast is that most people sometimes, at least I do, I veer if you have good travel skills. I usually will try to veer into whatever street. So like I'll veer into perpendicular to do that, to give myself a little bit more safety if I can. But if you don't know how to correct out of that veer, then you are, I don't want to say you're, you're up a creek with no paddles. So that is yep. one suggestion I would have. Use it yeah. cautiously. Well, that, that's, that's why it's an advantage to have the other signal <clears throat> on the other side of the street that you can locate towards. Um, thank you, Dawn. Welcome. Yep. We have Mary. Mary? Yes. Hi. Hello. This is uh, Mary in, in Massachusetts. And hi. I have, hi. Um, so a, a couple of quick, well, questions. One, um, you mentioned earlier about the guidelines talking about uh, sidewalks as well. And I'm wondering um, if that means that if these, or what the guidelines say regarding sidewalks if i mean i live in a city where there's a wide variance in the quality in oh yeah um, of sidewalks and we'll got i mean i don't know what the guidelines are regarding sidewalks but will that dictate cities and towns having to put in sidewalks um okay excellent no in the end the short answer is if they don't have sidewalks they don't have to put them in okay um but if they put them in then they have to meet certain criteria which has to do with, uh, I think, a, a six-foot path of travel width. Uh, you can't have uh, obstacles. A lot of sidewalks that have been around for a while, like a tree roots, if you're, you know, kicking part of the sidewalk up, you got uh, stuff that's left on it. There's a lot of litigation actually out there um, against cities, uh, against Baltimore, or San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, New York City, who have been sued just because their sidewalks aren't compliant. But and even some smaller places like like Tallahassee, Florida actually got sued and did, did a tremendous amount of work on their sidewalks because they were sued by a blind guy. Right, right. So if there is a sidewalk, you, you can make them make it accessible. But if there's no sidewalk, you can't make them install it. Yeah. Oh, so. Mary, did, did, you, did you have another so question? Um, well, that is interesting to know about the sidewalks because, uh, um, yeah, I'm wondering, regarding the uh, um, accessible pedestrian signals, you know, I, I – I know I have a number of them in my city and I push a button and I wait for the <laughs> signal, but I've never known the complexity and what all these, what the pedestrian signals could do. I mean, how do we get educated 
to know what these signals are able to do in, in, a, well, in any city or town that has them. I, yeah, I, you that, know, that, that's one of the reasons we're, we're doing this show, um, Mary, um, to, to try to be sure that our folks do know more about what the, the new accessible pedestrian signals can do. Now, the, the ones that are installed in Massachusetts may be older and they may not be able to do nearly as many things as the current ones could do if they were installed. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I, every city and municipality in Massachusetts will be different too, in terms of exactly. what we have. Yep. Um, yep. But that's the thing is, I mean, how, how do we, how do we know <laughs> what we well, have available what, what, to us? What you, know? what you do to start with is, is you, you, you talk to your traffic engineers and you essentially say, okay, I understand we have accessible pedestrian signals. Um, so why not come to a meeting of our of our local council and tell us exactly what these signals do? Go through the whole thing with us from beginning to end, exactly what they do, every mm -hmm. single um, every single thing they can do. And then if 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 they're older, then I think you can talk with them about some of the things that newer signals can do. Um, and say, you know, when you're putting in when you're putting in new ones, could you think about um, putting in ones that will do A, B, and C? Mm -hmm. Well, that's an excellent point. Uh, that's a very good suggestion. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Mary. We have Michael Byington. Ah, a mobility instructor. Uh, not him even. again. Oh boy! <laughs> Look out, Chris. <laughs> oh no, I'm I'm. I'm basically a good guy and I'm not going to, uh, Chris and I just found out at the convention that we don't have to agree on everything to respect each other. So <laughs> here we go. As, hey, which Chris? As, Me. <laughs> both oh, <okay>. of you. <laughs> as a uh, legally blind guy who also is a certified orientation and mobility specialist, I've got so many things I'd like to ask or talk about that there's no way you're going to give me that amount of time, nor should you. So Send an I'm, email. Going, I'm going to try to break it down to three short comments here, and hopefully I'll have time for those. First of all, in terms of your uh, discussion of history at the beginning of this poll, uh, ACB has had some members who have actually been on the access board the one that comes to my mind who did some excellent work on detectable warnings was Tony Cothran, who was a judge from Alabama. Uh, yes, you're right. You're and, right. I'd completely forgotten. You're absolutely right. I also want to uh, mention, along with Pat Beatty, one of the staffers of the Access Board who really moved a lot of this stuff forward a great deal during her tenure there. And she has... Uh, she is, is not with us anymore, was Lorinda Steele. And she had yep. some other last names because she got married a time or two. But Steele is the one that I knew her by. And many of you yep. who have been around ACB for a long time may remember her from her work on the information desk for many years. Yep. Now, as to uh, the issues that you discussed concerning the role of white cane laws and the white cane, Paul, uh, the one thing that I would like to talk about just very briefly is a study that was done, I believe, by Gene Berkwin and Donna Sauerberger a few years ago, uh, where they were doing some 
actual experimentation with Gene Berkwood standing out in the middle of traffic. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yep. Uh, to see how many people really knew what a white cane was and reacted to it. And I don't have the study in front of me, but roughly 70% of drivers at least showed some indication of knowing what a white cane was for or that right. they yield to one. However, those of you who think that it's always safer to use a guide dog because traffic understands them better are wrong. That's not what I said, Michael. No, I, no. I know you. I, I wasn't saying you, uh, Becky. Uh, <laughs> the fact is, only I believe about forty-seven percent. No, no, my wife is telling me twenty-nine percent of uh, those same drivers reacted in the same behavioral ways when they saw a person with a guide dog in harness. So one of the yep. things that I have always done as an O&M guy is suggested to uh, people that I work with with guide dogs that any enhancement to the harness to make it more visible that they can think of to do, whether it's strobe lights, uh, glow wicky mm -hmm. tape, or whatever needs to be done. It's, it's very Michael. Let, let me add something to that, because some of the schools now are suggesting that people carry what's called an ID cane, which is a shorter white cane, if you want to use something like that. And if if you know, if you're in an intersection with your guide dog and you're in that you're you're pretty sure that you're you're not going to be recognized, you can wave that cane. Uh, and flagging with that cane can be helpful. Don't get me started yep. on ID canes overall, however, because... No, 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 but that's... <laughs> yeah, it, uh, I mean, they're required in Europe, so, you know... Right. It's not, We're talking about accessibility here. The yeah. third thing... Your, th is your question. third question. Yep. Yes. And, and that is, uh, at least in the cities that I've worked in, when a blind person specifically requests a mid-block crosswalk or a traffic signal where there just isn't one because they have been nearly hit or whatever and they've got a lot of people in the neighborhood on their side they usually get it but what they get is a signal that is abbreviated as an rrfl or rrfs that stands for rapidly repeating flashing signal or or uh, light and those simply turn on a yellow flashing light for supposedly long enough for the average person uh, to get across the street using that 3.5 figure that Chris gave us. My concern about those uh, for a blind person is that, in fact, I don't think that they really improve safety much, and they certainly don't improve the confidence of the blind uh, traveler because basically a yellow flashing light is telling a driver you're supposed to slow down and move with caution. And we all know how effective that is. But it's perfectly legal for a driver to drive within, uh, say, less than a foot of the person's hind end or front end or cane or whatever. And it's, it's, that's, that's absolutely uh, getting in the way of the whole concept of yielding the right of way. All yeah, they do I, is allow for some caution in yeah. uh, sharing space. And I would like the panelists to comment on the legality and the advisability of those 
or what they think ought to happen with them. And thank you very much. You're welcome, Michael. Panel? Okay, so we, we, when we talk about accessible pedestrian signals, mm -hmm. there are two other uh, types of signals that aren't called signals, they're called beacons. And the difference between a beacon and a pedestrian signal or a traffic signal because your, your signal is what signal it's always on it's always either you know the traffic's either uh, going or stop or the walk is on or not so it's a 24-hour a day deal um there are these uh, lights that are called beacons and they're only on when they're activated and um so the uh, rectangular rapidly flashing beacon that michael is talking about um is in fact uh just as you said michael it's just to alert drivers that there's a pedestrian that's pushed the button so they see the flashing yellow lights and so they start to realize that oh i better i better be careful now in fact they have a pretty good record of alerting drivers and slowing drivers down there have been studies on this okay and one reason why jurisdictions like them is they're cheaper okay um and they're they're, they're easier to install but what they don't do is they don't give the pedestrian blind or otherwise the right of way what i mean right away Absolutely. is uh, i i get you know if i have the right way i get to cross and and cars are not supposed to be there we're not sharing the space all right Hi. the people that have the right of way get to be there the cars don't now on these yellow uh light deals you don't have a right of way all that's really telling the driver is look out for a pedestrian but the driver and the pedestrian can share the same space okay and of course if they literally share the same space then somebody's dead and it's not the driver um so, so there so are problems. clearly there, we we need to object to those whenever we can yes right but they but they are perfectly yeah. legal under the manual uniform traffic control devices yeah and then there's yeah, another kind of enough. beacon that can be can be fitted with uh, an app which which is called a, a hawk signal um and and you can stick an apps on that one and uh and turn that into a signal but um yeah so those are two and frankly yeah. since i was going to say something about roundabouts um uh in roundabouts where you have you know the streets coming off the the final access board guideline says that you have to have either an accessible pedestrian signal or a, rap, a rectangular rapidly flashing beacon or a crosswalk table which essentially is uh, a speed bump that's flattened out for about six feet across so yeah. um the, and the original guy the original notice of proposed rulemaking for the access board said you had to have an accessible pedestrian signal now they've weakened that okay that's a problem it is a problem so I, the, I would like to thank other, chris and uh and uh becky for all of their work and the work of the acb committees that have worked on this so diligently for so many years because if we think it's bad now i dread to think how much worse it would have been and would have become without them ACB. no question um chris the other chris or becky do you want to add anything no, I will just say you you mentioned the the RRFB, Chris, and then the the hybrid flash and beacon. Um, the hybrid flash.
flashing beacon or hawk signal as it's also called. Uh, the only benefit of that over an RRFB is that there are pedestrian signals and a true APS um, at those locations. And so when someone uh, presses that APS, um, you are going to get the message that you can uh, that you can cross, and you're going to get that viral tactile feedback, uh, just like you would at a at an intersection, because the lights are beginning. They they first start flashing yellow to warn motorists that someone is wanting to cross. Then they flash red, which is an indication that you're supposed to stop. And then they go to a steady red, which also then conveys stop. Um, the walk signals then come on, um, and you are given that information that you can cross that roadway. So they're a bit safer than the, than the RRFB, uh, but also to, to Chris's point, um, these RRFBs that have been uh, have been installed, uh, whether you're talking about um, uh, blind pedestrians or sighted pedestrians, they have dramatically decreased the number of uh, pedestrian deaths uh, where they've been uh, applied. So uh, I, I agree that they're not, I don't trust them personally and I'm sighted, <laughs> yeah, I don't trust them as much uh, as I would uh, a, a traffic signal or uh, a hybrid flash and beacon, but uh, but they have been proven in these studies uh, to uh, to increase safety uh, across to save lives. Pedestrians. Yep, and I think the reason for that is the drivers have become somewhat inured to uh, the red light, you know, and mm -hmm. and you know you have a lot of people that just drive through. Uh, stop signs and, and red lights, but the flashing uh, beacon catches drivers' attention in ways yeah. that uh, I think some traffic signals don't. Uh, and then in Florida, sure. I've seen a number of locations in Florida where they add, in addition to the RRFBs on the side of the road to catch drivers' attention, they're also putting in these flashing lights in the crosswalk itself. Um, yes. yes. So whenever those lights come on, there, that's it's just more effective information for drivers that there's a pedestrian there and they need to slow down. Um, and then the only other thing I'll add to that is another uh, thing that that has been discussed and I've seen applied is adding light uh, to these RFBs at nighttime uh, so that it illuminates the pedestrian and the crosswalk. And yep. that's also helped to uh, to lessen pedestrian right. accidents. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Miss Marianne. Um, let's ask Darcy. Darcy, is there anyone in, I haven't seen your hand up, but is there anyone in Clubhouse who would like to speak? We'll assume not. Um, okay, we have Ray, Ray Campbell. Uh, Ray Campbell is one of the individual plaintiffs in the uh, ACB of Metropolitan Chicago uh APS suit. Thank you, Ray, for what you yes, yeah, uh, definitely. You are very well. I uh and, and you can and you can tell us a little about that, Mr. Ray. Sure, sure. And uh well I'm still just uh, do a couple things. Well so the Chicago suit uh so where we're at is um I was actually just talking to our disability rights advocates attorneys about um a month or so ago and um they are starting to talk to the, into the negotiations with the city about remediation. Um, so, um, you know, we have some pretty, um, you know, definite things that we want to see. It's, it's going to be interesting. I think 
I think that as they were through the whole, which resulted in litigation, I think Chicago is going to be drag kicking and screaming to actually do this. But um, um, that's uh, they'll get it done. I mean, obviously they have to now. They're not appealing it, so that's that's a good thing. So that is a good thing. It's a very good thing. Um, just to a comment and a question. Uh, so my comment is uh, back to um, Chris Bell's point about federal money that's available. One of the other areas for funding that you might also want to look at if you are wanting to get APSs installed is if your state has any kind of transportation funding. For example, here in Illinois, right. we have build, Rebuild Illinois, and there's a lot of money for transportation projects in that uh in that pot of uh, money, that 10-year capital program. So any of those kind of programs also can be helpful if they tell you they don't have money, you point the, to them and and that sort of thing. My question is, is probably to Chris Holloway more than anybody, uh, is we've heard about OCO and maybe there are other apps like it out there. We've heard about, but we've heard mainly about OCO. Do you believe, and others can add to this too, in no way should they be a substitute for accessible signals. Absolutely not. But is there, do you believe that they can be a use, that the apps like that can be a useful tool in our toolbox, uh, in our traveling toolbox? And, uh, and, uh, and that, uh, because I'll tell you, I tried using OCO in downtown Springfield and I, I had all kinds of trouble getting it to work. I've spent an afternoon walking around and ended up at the, uh, ended up at the microbrewery. Imagine that. And <laughs> <laughs> Is Hoko a brand of craft beer there, right? Or no, it's not. <laughs> but, but I had trouble using them. And you talk about ages of signals. We've got signals in this town that have the word walk and don't walk in text, that, which right. nothing will take. So, do you, do you think yep. there's a place for apps like that in our toolbox? And I'll hang, I'll mute and listen. Yeah. Hey, Ray, um, that's a great question. And I appreciate you asking it. Um, I think from our perspective, we have always said that um, those types of apps, and we have one ourselves um, called the Pet App, are strictly a supplement to the um, the actual physical device uh, that's on the roadway, uh, the, the APS. And I, I too downloaded the OCO app and and tried it out um, in some a couple of different cities that uh, uh, that I have visited with mixed results, as you said. Um, my most recent one was I was attending the Blinded Veterans Association meeting in St. Louis, Missouri, last week, I believe it was, and yep. um, uh, I you know I pulled the app out. I noticed that in in uh, downtown uh, St. Louis where we were at, there were no um, uh, pedestrian push buttons, no APS, uh, just old, uh, 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 pedestrian signals. And I was like, just curious. And so I, I pulled out the, the OCO uh, app on my phone and I used it the way that the, the gentleman told me that he's been instructing people, uh, to utilize it. And one of my uh, counterparts was with me and he kind of filmed this whole thing going. And what was, uh, what was interesting is the, um, the pedestrian signal was kind of turned so that even a sighted pedestrian would have difficulty seeing it to see what that um, uh, what that message was, right? 
and and I'm yep. trying to get the OCO app to work and it's coming in and it's going out and it's coming in and it's going out. But once the walk signal came on, it seemed to pick it up pretty well. And as I utilized that app to kind of guide me towards that, that beaconing sound, if you will, of it seeing that app, um, I realized that I had veered out of the crosswalk and Oops. ran into a fire hydrant. So oh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it, but I, I do truly believe that it is a useful tool, um, especially in these locations where we're, you know, we're waiting for APSs to be installed. And in those cases, something's got to be better than nothing. Right. Um, yes. And so I, I think as a supplemental technology, it, it's, it's actually could be uh, useful and, and beneficial, but um, you know, it, it it can only work as well as the uh, the pedestrian signals are operating. And so, if you had you know pedestrian signals that uh, were inoperable or were not placed in a good uh, location where it might take you out of the crosswalk and more into traffic, uh, that that's the part that concerns me a little bit. Yeah, um, I, I I I agree with that sense. In fact, I was talking to somebody. Um, about my experience uh, here in Springfield, because I also went out, we've got a major intersection near where we live uh, between a state road and a city street. And uh, I went out there and was actually at standing in the crosswalk and trying to get it to pick up the signal. And, um, well, I, uh, and, and, you know, somebody said, you know, it might be turned just a little bit. And mm -hmm. so that's not, that's not real good either. So um, I, def I definitely think the message is that, we need to continue to fight for accessible signals, uh, but those tools can be a help. And the last yes. comment I'll make on white cane laws, we need to do education and maybe get them revised so they're better. But we we need we need we need, they need to be enforced. And you know, our police departments, unfortunately, because of low staffing and stuff, yeah, they say they don't have time for pedestrian issues and stuff. Come come back in early October when we do this again. I sure well. We're going to talk about the white cane law, uh, right. big time. All right. Um, thanks, guys. Thanks, Ray. Um, Mr. Holloway, is your PED app available in this country? And if it is, do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, sure. It absolutely is. Now, um, there are some limitations with uh, PED app currently. One of those is it's designed to work with your um, existing smartphone. You can download the app off of either the uh, the Android store or um uh, the apple play store it's a free download um, but it only works with our current newest generation of aps so kind of to one of the points of one of the uh, ladies that had called up it's like you know hey we have all different types of uh these buttons that yep. are out here some older ones how do we even know how they work um that sort of thing so i i, I actually wrote that down that was a that was a great point that she made um, and I'd love to try and find a better way of, of getting that information out to people so that they know how to utilize these technologies. But right. um, so the app itself, uh, the the idea behind it is uh, what what we the feedback that we were getting from a number of um, uh, visually impaired pedestrians is if they maybe lived in one city and worked in a different city or they were visiting multiple different cities, um, they're user experience was different in every single one of them. And gaining some type of consistency was something that was um, important to them. And so the idea behind the app was no matter how that button might be programmed by the city. So as an example, 
We talked about this early on. Uh, maybe a city says, we're not going to provide this audible countdown information. We're going to use the, the, the locate tone. But maybe uh -huh. that's something that is important to you that makes you feel safer as you're crossing the roadway. Well, while the button itself may be emitting that locate tone, your phone could be providing you the amount of time left to cross the roadway. Uh, so cool is that? It's, a, it's a supplement to the, the physical devices um, on the roadway. And then in addition to that, I know, we, and, and I've heard this now a couple of times as well, um, you, you know, it can be some people find the rapid percussive sound to be a bit more confusing and disorienting than an actual audible message. And right. um, the where, you know, it's it's dictated to us by the MUTCD, that old antiquated document, um, about what kind of uh, messages we can play based upon the distance that our buttons are installed at. Um, so if they're closer than 10 feet, they're told to use an audible message that very clearly will tell you, you know, um, uh, Broadway, walk sign is on to cross Broadway. Whereas right. if the buttons are further than 10 feet apart, you're going to get that rapid percussive sound. And for right. those individuals who would prefer to know the name of the street that they're actually crossing, what the app would do is say, okay, even though that button is emitting that rapid percussive sound, I'm going to tell you that the walk sign is on to cross Broadway. Um, so it's that level of information. Now, one of the things that we are working towards, and we're, we're getting closer on this, um, is a way to make older technology, uh, Polaris older technology, in fact, um, as well as even our competitors' technology um, uh, provide that same that same functionality, so that the app could be more widely dispersed and widely used. But right now, it's it's really currently limited to our our latest technology. Charlottesville, Very Virginia. Good. Charlottesville, Virginia mm -hmm. is the largest um, agency so far that has adopted PADAP, and they've installed it at all. 76 of their uh, traffic signals um, and, and put APS in all 76 of their traffic signals. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. That's great. Um, uh, Marianne, did you say we we have no hands? No, we do have hands. No, no, we oh, definitely okay. have hands. We have Sophia. Yep. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm an at-large member in England, so I'm not sure if it's the same there, but I, over here, they teach in public schools, all the children, road safety classes. And I was thinking perhaps it's worth considering campaigning into these road safety programs to include teaching the children how blind people use all these different crossings and signals and what Great to idea. do to see a white yeah. train. Idea. Yeah. Um, the children we, we will actually, take into adulthood. Yeah, we, we actually um, have just done a grant in Florida that's that's going to be looking at some of these very questions and and I've written that down as um, as something that I will incorporate into our proposal so thank you very much that's really good and as well it could be repeated when people take their driving tests and their lessons well I think that that's crucial I mean we yeah. in Florida we now know that that there are a certain number of questions about the white cane law that are in the the list, but we but we haven't been able to give to get a guarantee from the traffic engineers that says that the questions about white cane safety will actually be asked to everybody who's taking the test. That's correct. It's random. Yeah. So, yeah. so but in Europe, but, uh, very late. 
it must be 3 a.m in england <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. 2 a.m here but your program's yeah. great so i'm enjoying it <laughs> thank you thank, thank you very you. much for being here yep thank you miss marianne we have Lori sharf hey Lori. Lori. hey Lori. she's a new york maven yeah Hey, can you guys hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay. So first of all, great show. And um, I just want to say that I encourage the ACB affiliates across the country to connect with uh, your local traffic engineers, as well as a local orientation and mobility instructor. I have found that many, many people who are blind or low vision do not understand how to safely use an accessible pedestrian signal. And traffic conditions have changed and continue to change. So even understanding concepts associated with specific intersections in your geographic area are important. Um, and I really, commend Polara for your app. Um, I have heard great things from people about it. And regarding OCO, um, there are a lot more limitations than the manufacturer will admit to. Um, and I really have a problem with them saying that you can use it as a beacon to cross the street because um, depending on where the ped head appears is going to depend on, as Chris indicated, where it's going to direct you. Um, it, it just, to me, that's, that's really a safety issue. Um, yep. And you really should be relying on your O&M skills to the best of your ability to help you stay aligned on a crossing. Um, thank you. Thanks, Thanks Lori. Thank you, Lori. So you guys, um, we have about 10 minutes left. Um, I know that there are some, some questions about uh, inappropriate installations and that kind of stuff. Do we want to talk about some of those or um, Yeah, Chris or talked other about issues? them a little bit. Well, Chris yeah. talked about them a little bit. One of the biggest problems I see, and this is just sort of anecdotal, is there, see when you put these signals in, it under the manual and uniform traffic control devices, they can use what's called engineering judgment. So yes. what happens is, you know, uh, they say, oh, geez, you know, there's wiring here. And if I put this in within uh, uh, five feet of, uh, of the curb ramp, which I think is the standard, um, I'm going to have to spend $20,000 to moving the wiring. Well, heck, I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to put it back here 15 feet. Well, when it's so far back, it's, I mean, yeah, you can tell when the, uh, when the walk sign is on, but you can't use it to line yourself up. Um, right. So there are a lot of situations where they're just mislocated and they're usually mislocated to, to save money, to save retrofitting something. And that's a real problem. I'll add to that, uh, Chris, another issue uh, for them. And the reason why they locate them um, not where they're supposed to be locating them is uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's the design of the intersection, but they'll they'll end up with um, truck traffic turning, and the trucks oh, yeah. will constantly take out those poles and the and yep. the and the signals and the and the APS as well, and and you know, and they they just feel like they're constantly going out there and putting them back up again. But that's a that's a roadway design issue. That's not uh, an APS issue. So yeah, 
so if if we um if we look at if we've if we've talked about some of the areas where where there are concerns now now there are some other components in in the um in in the proag um that concern other folks with disabilities are we generally comfortable with those well i don't know what the, i mean <laughs> i you know i don't know what the other concerns are i think i think pro i got to work for uh, people with all disabilities. For everybody yeah right yeah so yeah um now i know detectable warnings have been uh a sore subject for many people who use wheelchairs as well as right. bicyclists and uh I, I there's no fix for that really as far as i can tell um but yeah i mean there's there's always there's often some conflict um but i do want to say one other i want sure. i want to say two other things quickly um one of the things that the proag tries to do is to make it um more required to have perpendicular curb ramps in the direction of the crosswalk in many curb ramps and this is allowed under mutcd in many curb ramps they're diagonal and so you know you, you go to a diagonal curb ramp and you're heading into oncoming traffic and you got to know how to straighten yourself around so you're parallel with the crosswalk not that you're, you're going to cross it in oncoming traffic that's a real problem and and uh, the access board has has tried to make it much more difficult to do diagonal uh, curb ramps, which is a good thing. And lastly, um, you know, personally, I try to help a lot of state affiliates and chapters who are trying to get uh, accessible pedestrian signals at the local level. And I'm happy to be a resource um, and uh, to provide background. And I've also talked to, to I mean, I've given presentations to chapters and whatnot. So if there are people out there that, that want to pursue accessible pedestrian signals and they want uh, help, uh, contact me through the uh, the Pedestrian Environmental Access Committee. I'll be happy to help you. Now you have you have some other presentations coming up. Do you want to talk to us about those? Yeah, they're going to have a, a presentation. Uh, I haven't set the time or the date, but in September on uh, <clears throat> Sunday edition with uh, Anthony Corona. And then uh, Ron Brooks uh, is doing his one of his shows on untangling uh, transportation. Uh, and I forget if that's the second Wednesday or third Wednesday, I can never remember, in September. But we're going to have Sarah Presley on there. And she is uh, one of the pro-ag gurus at the Access Board. So that should be a good show. Mm -hmm. Very good. Miss Becky, um, do you want to talk about some other things that environmental access is doing or some other areas that we need to be concerned about? One of the things that we're, we've been looking at doing for a, a very long time, and we're still looking at, it, at doing, uh, is creating some type of a short pedestrian uh, safety type video aimed at drivers explaining how blind people cross the street and what what an APS is and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, we've we've created we started out creating a proposal. Um, we're hoping to ask ACB to help us find grant money to produce it. A high quality video that can be on YouTube that can be wherever you know the best social media places are to put it. So we that's, this grant, that's we have this grant in Florida that's coming up. So we will talk. Okay. Because right. I, I, you know, we may be able, 
we may be able to kill two birds with one stone. We can get a, a video we can use in Florida and get one you can use nationally. Well, Karen Gorgi and Kathy Lyons, um, Kathy Lyons has been pushing for this for as long as I've been on the committee, even before I was nice. chair of it. Nice. And yep. it's been, a, it's just kind of everything kind of, mm-hmm. life just kind of happens, but it's all about money. But Karen it is. has helped create a proposal, which we have to revise and revive and revise. And then we'll see. Yeah, we'll <laughs> talk. That'd be great. Yep. Very good. Um, Chris Bell, uh, and, any last comments? Sure. Um, you know, if, if you're having trouble getting uh, your transportation engineer to, uh, to listen to you, um, you might want to call uh, the Protection and Advocacy Agency in your state. In every state, there is a federally funded project that is there uh, exclusively to represent people with disabilities. And they're called the Protection Advocacy Agency, and they have different names in different states. But um, the litigation that we did in North Carolina to get accessible um, absentee voting, we did uh, through the local Protection Advocacy Agency, Disability Rights North Carolina, as well as Disability Rights Advocates. So uh, the the Protection Advocacy Agency is is a place to go if, if you think you need some help, if you think your rights are being violated, whether it's with regard to APS or anything else. And I think a lot of the states have gone to the terminology of of disability rights. So um, one of the things that one of the things that that you can do is is look um, in the 800 directory because virtually all of them will have 800 numbers within your state. So that's a very good idea, Chris. I, I, I think it's excellent. And they they can also provide you with with advice and assistance in terms of in terms of how to interact with these folks and are often very prepared to do that. Um, right. And Chris they, Holloway, have, they have non-lawyer advocates as well. So they're, they're yep, trained. They do. Chris Holloway, you have about 30 seconds or 45 seconds for any final comments? Probably don't need that long. Just to say thank you so much for the invitation. It has been my pleasure to be with you um, today. Um, I, you know, I'm a learner. And I learned yep. a lot just listening to everybody on this show. So thank you for the opportunity to be here and to continue advocating. And if we can do anything else, um, either personally or as a company to assist uh, in your efforts, please reach out to us and let us know. Uh, we're here to to work with you on this. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you, Chris. sir. Yeah, Chris, we really appreciate it and appreciate that you're it represented as, as many affiliate conventions as you are. I, just yep. to get the word out. Yep. Thanks so much. So panel, thank you so much for being here. Um, I hope that everyone will plan to tune in next week um, when we're going to do a, a kind of a remembrance of, um, of Oral Miller, who passed away on the 6th of August. He was uh, the fourth ACB president and uh, probably spent a lot more time being national representative and then executive director. Um, we would really love to have loads of people who knew him had stories to tell whether those stories are in fact um, to do with um, his time at ACB or with his time with uh, the U.S. Um, uh, Association of Blind Athletes, either one. Um, we would love, love to have you guys join us next week. In the meantime, 
Um, tonight's been a great show, and thank you so much for being here, everyone, and good night. <laughs>